Good morning to the one who breaks the darkness with his liberating light, to the one who frees the prisoners, giving sight to those who are blind, dear friends. The student in Idaho in 1997 named Nathan Zaner did a science project that uh, made news, it made headlines, he uh, found a chemical, a dangerous chemical that he found, it was called dihydrogen monoxide. And he went around and he took a petition to try to destroy this dangerous chemical. And he asked people that, uh, that he went to, he said, uh, would you be in favor of eliminating completely this chemical? And for good reason, the, this chemical dihydrogen monoxide One, can cause excessive sweating and vomiting. Two, it's a major component of acid rain. Three, it can cause severe burns in its gaseous state. Four, accidental inhalation can kill you. Five, it decreases the effectiveness of automobile brakes. And six, it has been found in tumors of terminal cancer patients. Nathan went around and he asked 50 people to strictly control or eliminate the hydrogen monoxide. 43 said yes. Six were undecided, and only one would not support the restriction. How about you? What do you think about that? Would you sign that petition to restrict the hydrogen monoxide? If you would, then you would be signing a petition to eliminate the hydrogen monoxide's more famous name, H2O, water. (laughs) <laughs> he won first prize uh, in his science fair for state and the news made headlines. His report was named, How Gullible Are We? And if you can see the hydrogen, two hydrogen, mon- monoxide, one oxygen makes H2O, the same thing. And the meme has turned into a pretty famous idea. The meme is basically believing in something before you actually know the full impact of what it is that you're believing, right? And so you get memes like this. If the hydrogen monoxide can rust these pipes, just imagine what it's doing to your insides. The hydrogen monoxide is dumped into rivers by big companies. It never biodegrades. It's not just bad for your water, but check this out. Think about your plants. The hydrogen monoxide is deliberately sprayed on organic crops. The horror. You get the point. You know, dehydrogen monoxide, this whole idea, reminds me a lot of unbelief. Spiritual unbelief. We are conditioned by nature, the psalmist says in Psalm 51. By nature, we're conditioned to take something that's very good. In fact, the very, what, definition of good, God. And by nature, to say that that good is bad, that is the definition of unbelief, isn't it? To put a title on God, the hydrogen monoxide, on the very water of life that gives life and gives purpose and gives meaning and gives eternal life to you and me, uh, we are conditioned to, to fight against that. And in Romans, it actually says, Um, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And so just like believing that dihydrogen monoxide is bad for you without fully understanding it, we very often believe God 
is not competent. Uh, maybe, maybe it's thinking to ourselves, well, well, God, why is there all this trouble in the world? And why, is there, why are there orphans starving in Africa? Why is that happening? And is it out of your control? Um, God, he, he must not be a good God if, if he's imposing his moral standards on me because I want to do what makes me happy. Unbelief, really, in, in, in its simplest form, is deciding not to acknowledge God for who he really is because we have this, such a skewed vision of who he is in the world that he's made for us, so much so that we can miss out on it. And that's, the, that's what's really at the essence of this story from John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus goes into this world of blindness, of darkness, and yes, he does some incredible things. He heals a man of his blindness, but he does this. He penetrates into the world of an unbeliever, an unbelievers, and he totally shakes it up. Whereas their point of view of him, and it becomes really clear as we're going to go through the text, is that he's dangerous. Why? Because he's confronting their sin. And he's confronting their world that they had created for themselves. And he's blowing it up with, with who he is and who God is. Not something that's dangerous, but something that is life-giving. In fact, he calls himself the light of the world. And earlier in John, he calls himself the water of life. And so let's get into the text. It's from John chapter 9. There's three sections. A couple weeks ago, I preached on uh, David and Bathsheba, and I said that we could have a whole sermon series, right, on just that story. Well, guess what? Here's another one of those. We're going to go through the whole chapter of John, but we're going to digest it in three parts. The first part is the healing. The second part is the hearing. And the third part is the heeding or the heed. The first part, the healing. As Jesus goes along with his disciples, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, so this is their question. They, they see this blind man, and, and we learn later that uh, he maybe isn't such an old man. He has uh, uh, parents that are still alive. We learn later that he sits by the side of the road and he begs. This is his profession. This is how he makes money. And they come up to him, and the disciples, they say, Jesus, what's the, what's the cause of this man's blindness? There must be something within this man or something like this notorious sin within this family that made this man blind. Jesus, interestingly enough, doesn't even go there. And we might think to ourselves, well, you know, that's, that's those ancient superstitious people. They just believe that the powers that be, that karma or that God, this vindictive God, would just punish somebody with blindness because of this deep, dark stain of sin. But actually, I've heard, even today, I've known a mother whose child um, had cancer. And you know what her concern was? What was it that I did, Right? What was it that I did, and even to the point of what is it that I fed that child when that child was born? What was it in the environment that I did? Is God telling me something that I did something wrong? And so this really isn't such an ancient superstitious question. It's in the heart of everybody that thinks things through. And this man's disability, it seemed to the disciples, was a reflection of his spiritual state or his family's spiritual state. But here's Jesus' answer. He comes back and he says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is taking them from their question. Jesus, what's the cause and what's the effect of this sin? And Jesus is taking it to a whole new level, right? And he's saying it's not really about the cause and effect of why this man is born blind, but what is it? It's what is God doing in this man's weakness? 
Do you get that? Because Jesus works, and God works, His greatest works, His masterpieces, His art in our weakness. He works in this man's weakness, and He says, this is God's stage. This is where God is going to put on display His great goodness, and it only is going to happen with this man who is blind in this moment at this time. And you're going to see God at His best because this man uh, is blind and he's going to work through him. And so to our question, when we ask questions, God, why do you allow this to happen? God, why did this happen? Maybe Jesus is teaching us like he's teaching his disciples what? It's not so much what happened, but it's what is God is doing through you right now. Jesus displays God's work in our weakness. And the word that he uses there in verse 3 He says, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The word there for displayed, uh, the word that he uses there for displayed is that word epiphany. The word epiphany is the word that we hear at epiphany time, right? When Jesus reveals himself to all of the nations. And the word means uh, a, a, a light bulb going off. It's that moment in the empire strikes back when... When Luke discovers who his father is, he has an epiphany that changes his world, that changes his worldview. And here Jesus is saying this. He says, in this moment, at this time on this stage, I am going to reveal myself. God is going to reveal himself in this world. That's a huge theme throughout the book of John, in fact. This epiphany, this coming of Jesus into the world. And so he says um, in John chapter 1, John writes uh, about John the Baptist. He says about Jesus John the Baptist says, I come baptizing with water so that he, Jesus, would be revealed. In other words, so that he would be epiphanied, so that he would be revealed to this world. That's why John's purpose was. And then later on in in chapter 7, just two chapters before this, um, Jesus is talking with his blood brothers. And they're doing ministry up in northern Galilee, kind of the hill country, you could say, outside of the city. And Jesus is speaking with his brothers. And his brothers, it's interesting, they says they do not believe in him. But you know what they say? They see all the miracles that he's doing and they say, Jesus, you know what you should do? You should go into the city and put this show on the road. You should go into Austin at South by Southwest, but back then it was into Jerusalem and at the Feast of Tabernacles, they said. And you should do all of these miracles that you're doing. You should do them in town so everybody can see it. And they wrote this, and and John wrote this about the brothers. They said to Jesus, no one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show, or epiphany, same word, yourself to the world. So what's that saying? Even these unbelieving brothers want Jesus to blow the doors open and to show himself for who he really is, for what he can really do. And this would be the stage. Jesus says to his brothers in chapter 7, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem right now, and he didn't. He waited and he waited and he waited. And even when he went to the Feast of Tabernacles, it says that he acted or he worshipped in secret. Until now, now this is the moment in chapter 9 when all of this comes together and Jesus says, now, right now in this man's life, I'm going to reveal, I'm going to epiphany God on earth. So he goes on, verse 6. It says, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, this means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. You can't underestimate the power of this miracle. 
Why do I say that? Because even today, anybody out there have eye surgery ever before? Even today, the best eye surgeons cannot fully restore sight all of the way. Even today, uh, as far back as 2005, they were still discovering new layers of the eye. Even today, medical research and technology has only advanced so far as to give blind people and certain types of blind people some partial sight. The eye is such a complex organ in the body that it's impossible even today to give full sight. I mean, I'm talking about full, perfect vision again to somebody that was born blind. And yet Jesus, 2,000 years ago, when they were prescribing horse dung for sicknesses, when there was no technology for, for eyes, when there was no eyeglasses invented until probably the 12th or 13th century A.D., restores a man's vision. 1080p, 4K, 3D, he gave this man a new world. And you can't underestimate the power of that. Because if you're born blind, you don't even know what colors look like. The idea of color is something foreign to you. But now, this man, it says, he goes home and he goes home seeing. For the first time, he walks through the door of his home and he can see that door. For the first time, if he's living with his parents as a disabled person, he can finally see his mother's face for the first time. And think about how personal that is. For the first time, he could pull up his sleeves and he could see the color of his own skin. He could see the freckles on his arms. He could see every detail of God's beautiful creation in his world that he had never seen before. And he's seeing it perfectly. Jesus opens up a whole new world to this man. And if you're asking for a sign, an epiphany, uh, um, hmm, is God here on earth moment? <laughs> That's it. Because not even today can you have a miracle. Can you have a moment? Can you have something this incredible happen and not say? We say things about much less than this that God was active in their life. But this, of all things, was Jesus on display on the big stage in Jerusalem in front of all the people. What was the response? Um, Joe Blind uh, he wasn't named, so I get to come up with his name. Joe Blind, uh, his neighbors and his friends, they all come uh, and they gather around him and they say, is this really Joe Blind? And some people said, no, no, that's not Joe Blind. That couldn't be Joe Blind. Joe Blind is the beggar. He can't see and he's blind from birth. That's impossible. And other people said, no, I think that's Joe Blind. I know Joe Blind. That's him. And they have this little debate. It's not in the, in the text in front of you, but it's in between verses 7 in the next section. And then they go to Joe Blind and they say, Hey, Joe, who was it that healed you? And Joe says, It was Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, Where is Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I don't know. I don't know where he went. And so the people take Joe to court, as was the custom. If a miracle happened or if something great happened, where did you go? You went right to the pastors to see if this was from God or not. This is a pretty typical thing. They take him to the religious court of the time, and that's where we meet the Pharisees. The Pharisees who knew about Jesus, who had, um, who had questions for this man about this healing. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And that's a big deal that it's a Sabbath. Why is it a big deal? Well, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the church code compliance, you could call them, 
They're the ones who made rules about the Sabbath day. God said, in general, he said, the Sabbath day is to be a blessing to man. It's a day when everybody rests to remember the day of rest that I had when I created the world and to have that spiritual rest that you have with me. But then the code compliance and religious leaders took it a step farther. They said this. They said that there's rules about how much food you can make, how many steps you can take. There's rules about whether you can bend over and make mud in the ground. And so it's important to note now that their whole world is blowing up when they're about to hear this testimony. Their little idea about the Sabbath day, their, their idea about God is being threatened. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received sight. He put mud in my eyes, the man replied. Uh-oh, church code violation number 92, bending over and making mud. And I washed, uh-oh, church code violation 221, walking and going to the pool and washing, and now I see a miracle on the Sabbath day. Gasp. <laughs> Some of the Pharisees said, this man, and they're referring to Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath day. The first time I read that through, I nearly did a spit take. Because do you know how ludicrous that statement is when you read it? This man that just gave sight to a blind man, he couldn't possibly be from God. Why? Oh, because he doesn't keep the Sabbath day. That's kind of like if you were on an airplane and you witnessed someone having, uh, having a heart attack or having a heart problem and uh, a doctor that is on the airplane getting called to that place on the airplane where that man is and she performs an open heart surgery with no medical equipment and no hospital staff only using MacGyver, the things that are in the overhead bins. She puts together this man, or, and she heals him. She, she saves this man's life, and then you get onto the ground, and you're being interviewed about what you saw. And the, and the news, they come up to you, and they say, well, who was it that, that did this incredible thing? And you say, well, I don't think she's a doctor because she wasn't wearing a white lab coat. You know how r- ridiculous that is? Jesus has just healed this man of his eyesight. And what are they thinking about? They're thinking about the Sabbath day. They're thinking about their world that they created, their world of rules and laws and regulations. And they say, well, if God doesn't fit into my world, if he doesn't fit into what I think who God is, then he can't be God at all. Now do you get where unbelief comes from? Unbelief even makes us illogical when we think about it. God is penetrating into their world and he's doing things that are are greater than they could ever imagine, but they can't admit it. Why? The The trial goes on, the hearing keeps on going, and as it unfolds, the Pharisees call in this man's parents. Is this your son? Yes, this is your son. This is our son. Was he blind from birth? Yes, he's blind from birth. He's always been blind. This is the way that he came into the world. And then, this is the interesting part, the parents stop their testimony deliberately out of fear, it says. They stop their testimony out of fear because, and they say, no, no, we're going to stop talking. We're going to let him speak for the rest. Because it says this, it says that they were afraid of the Pharisees because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had already made up their mind about Jesus. They had already made up their mind that he wasn't the Messiah and they were going to blacklist everyone that put their faith in him or, or, or acknowledged him as coming from God. That's why it says in verse 22, 
the Jewish leaders already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that's exactly what unbelief is. Unbelief is already deciding not to acknowledge God. It happens at birth, like we said before. This is the way that we come into the world. We don't want to acknowledge him. Um, And it's the reason why many people today have rejected God and Jesus as their Savior altogether, because they see it as a threat to their life, their personal preferences. They see it as a threat to their box, their world, like those Pharisees made. Because Jesus threatens that the very core of it, our sin, that we so much love. And before you go and, and you say this, yeah, you, you preach it, preacher. You, you tell those unbelievers why they're unbelievers. No, 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 wait, hold your horses. I'm getting to you and me now. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth fed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish? If you do, say yes. All right, you're awake. But have you doubted that God can provide for you next month before? That he can take care of you and feed you? Have you already decided in your mind that it's a beautiful thing to talk about and to hear on Sunday morning, but then in your life that he's really incapable? That he's not really the water of life? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and rules from there. Do you believe that? Then why have you worried before about your immediate future, your eternal future? Why have you worried before about society and about God's hand working in every aspect of leadership Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he took away all of your sins and nothing can condemn you any longer because it's by grace alone that he did it? Do you believe that your sins are all forgiven? Then why do we return to him? Have we, I'm saying as Christians, and this is, this is the important thing, we need to hear this because we have that nature inside of us that wants to fight and rebel against God on this side of heaven and he's calling that unbelief on the carpet and he's penetrating into your convenient little world and he's telling you it's forgiven he's telling you that it's taken care of and he's telling you I am the the water of life but we cannot believe it it's so impossible for us to believe it on our own but Jesus doesn't leave this man here this way I want to go into one more thing about unbelief and then we're going to move on to how Jesus responds to unbelief because he does penetrate into it. The last thing I want to note about um, unbelief and it's about the effects of unbelief in our relationships. Look at verse 34. It says, To this they replied, uh, by the way, there's, I, I back up just a little bit. In between these verses, there's another conversation going on between this man and the Pharisees. It's kind of funny because he gets snarky with them. They say, can you tell us again what Jesus did? What was it again that he did? How did he do that again? And this man is getting fed up and he says, can't you see? I can see, so Joe Blind can see. These Pharisees cannot see. And he's telling them again and again, cross-examined again and again. And then he finally says this, and this is what really ticked them off. He said, 
I think that you want to be his disciples because you want to hear this story again and again and again. And they snap. And they, what do they say? They say, we don't want to be his disciples. You want to be his disciples. We want to be disciples of Moses, not Jesus of Nazareth. Moses is sent by God, but surely not this man that just healed you. And this man, the, Joe Blind, he then shoots back at them. You guys are as blind as ever. And that's what leads up to this ugly confrontation at the end in verse 34. To this they replied, the Pharisees replied to the man, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Unbelief creates the worst version of ourselves. Why? Do you see it right there? Look how closed-minded unbelief makes us. It makes us name-call people that aren't like us. It makes us, what, um, condescend to them. Look at what he says. He says, are you, they say, are you the one lecturing us? They have no room to grow in their, in their faith, in their intellect, because they think they have it all figured out. And finally, what is it? Unbelief can even lead to exclusion. And I know this personally, too, because friendships and family relationships have led to exclusion because Jesus was present in the relationship. How about you? It's a painful thing, but Jesus came to reach the lost, and he came to reach the Pharisees. He came to reach this man who was born blind. But the worst part about unbelief is that it strains. No, it doesn't just strain. It does strain a relationship with God, but it cuts off a relationship with God. The sinful mind is hostile to, the, to God, Romans says. It cannot do what God says, and that leads to eternal death. So what are we going to do? This man is kicked out. He's out, of this, uh, he's out of the trial. He's been blacklisted. And this is Jesus' response. Turn your page, page 8 in the service folder. This is the heed, the place where Jesus says, pay close attention. In fact, uh, most of all of Jesus' parables or his miracles, they have this nugget at the end or in the middle or wherever where he teaches. This is the big point. He's done this miracle and now he's teaching and he's saying, this is what I want you to get out of it. And this is how it starts. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. That last verse, that's the big point that he's making. If you've decided in your heart and your mind already that this Jesus of Nazareth could not possibly be God, even after all the evidence is in front of you, even if all of the miracles that are attested to, and I love the honesty and truthfulness, the verisimilitude, it's called, of this, this text because it has people wondering and, 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 and grasping and, and saying, this couldn't possibly be. These Pharisees, these, these neighbors that said, that's not Joe Blind, they weren't any less smart or had a lower IQ than we have today. They were thinking critically through this. This doesn't happen in the natural world, but they were struggling with their unbelief. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to keep your mind closed and your world closed to me, when I come to you in, in my spirit, I, I do these great things in your life. 
If you're going to keep your mind closed, you're more blind than ever. You not only are blind to what unbelief is doing in your life, but you're blind to the fact that your unbelief is cutting you off forever. And when Jesus enters in, are you keeping your eyes open for who he really is? Or have you closed your mind already and had a preconceived notion of it? But, he says this, the same person, myself, that people stumble on is the one and the only way that's going to give you eternal vision, sight, and life. This is how he comes to the man. You have a Savior, and if you're listening in live today, if you're listening to the recording and, you have wonder, and you're wondering or you have unbelief that you're struggling with, Jesus wants you to listen to this. He wants you to hear this if you're a Christian, and you need to be encouraged with the unbelief in the areas of your life that you need it. But did you see how Jesus comes into this man's world again? He's not done with Job blind. He comes back to him. You have a Savior that hears. A Savior that not just hears about you getting kicked out, a Savior that also searches. What does Jesus do? He searches and he searches and he searches until what? He found him. And Jesus was coming to this man, this man that has this whole new world sight. And he's, Jesus says, that's not enough. I want to give you something more than just a new world with sight. And so what does he ask him? Do you believe in the Son of Man? He asked this guy, Joe Blind, do you believe all of those things that Ezekiel wrote about in the Old Testament? That there would be one that would be from God that would come to this world, that would enter into it, that would be on display. Everybody would know it by the power, by the signs, by his message of the kingdom of God. Do you believe in that Son of Man that Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 7? Do you believe that that Son of Man is standing here with you right now? And the man says, oh, I would believe anything you tell me because I know that you're from God. Look at what you did to me. You opened my eyes. And then what does Jesus say? In the brilliant marriage of the miracle and the message, Jesus says, the one that you're speaking with, you have seen him. Jesus opened up a whole new world for this man. Not only did the man see the freckles and the hair and his own skin, but now he was looking into the face and he sees the Son of Man. He sees the eyes of his Savior. He sees the skin tone of his Lord. He sees the freckles on his face and he says, he's here. And my friends, for all the times that we fall and lapse into unbelief, Jesus has given us this and all of the Bible so that you and I have the confidence that when we look there and we look into that story and we look into these accounts, he's saying this, put yourself in the, in the, in the, in the place of that man. Jesus says, you're looking at your Savior, the one that never disbelieved, the one that lived perfectly in your place, the one who every time there was an opportunity to doubt, he never doubted, the one who never had a preconceived notion about God that God was somehow evil or not good for you, but always was faithful, and then he gave his life for you, and you can look at him and you can say, he's right there. He's right in front of me. He can heal the sick, but he can do something more than that. He can open up to you a whole new world. What's the man's response? Did you catch that? At the very end, he worshiped. 
And so what is this text? What is this whole account teaching us? It's teaching us the important truth of looking at Jesus through the eyes of a believer and belief. Look at everything great that he's done in your life, but then this too. When he opens your eyes and he shows you the world, the eternity that he's given you, and that's given to you on the cross, he says, worship, that's it, worship. The man bows down on his knees, and in that act of worship, he was admitting that this wasn't just God, this was his Savior. But how does, how, how does, how does Jesus tell us all throughout the New Testament to worship him? He says this, give your body, give your whole body, give your whole self over to me because I have given everything to you. And so when we worship, we come together and we sing Amazing Grace and, and we, 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 we pray together and we do that once a week. It's called corporate worship. Come back and let's keep on worshiping him, right? But more than that, worship him with your time. In the sacred moment in his word, with a devotion and in prayer, worship him. And when you do, I guarantee you your vision's going to improve. You're going to see him clearer. Your faith is going to be restored and you're going to understand and appreciate the great things that he's done for you when you worship him in private time, in devotion, with, by yourself or with your family. Worship him with your body. You know that he died on the cross to take away all of your sins and so what do you do with sin? You leave it behind. You don't have no need for it any longer. Worship him with your body and worship him with your service. I believe that a text like this reaching out to somebody like somebody who's disabled is a call for us as Christians who are Jesus here on earth, right? To reach out to those who are chemically addicted, to reach out to those who are physically disabled, to reach out to those who are lost, but not just to reach out to them and help them, but to ask them the question, what? Do you know the Son of Man? Can I tell you about my Savior that has given me a whole new world too? As we take this all to heart, as we take to heart the healing, as we take to heart the, he the hearing, as we take to heart the heeding, we ask God to open our eyes more and more to see the world that he's given us, eternal life. Do you see it? Say yes. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God of light, thank you for entering into our darkness. Uh, very often uh, we see our little world that we make and we don't understand the magnitude of the grace that you've shown us. But you are God and you showed yourself in a big way in that epiphany and healing that man's eyesight. More than that, enter into our hearts and renew our faith again that the unbelief that's there has been taken to the cross and it's left there so that we never have to return to it. So help us move forward as men, women, and children at this congregation, at this time, into the mission field that you've sent us to serve you and worship you in the ways that you would have us do that so that we can bring the message of the Son of Man, the Christ, the, the Savior of the world to all people and that all may come to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.